Hello, welcome to another edition of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I'm your host, Matt Herman, and all I can say is that, you know, despite Bayern Munich retaking the lead at the top of the Bundesliga, big news, big news, but that is far and away the only story. We got teenage phenoms tearing it up. We've got a once dominant team fighting the drop, a, a club who spent years almost allergic to spending big money, suddenly acting like a cash geyser. Um, you know, with all these great topics to talk about, I think it demanded a truly great guest. And so this week we have Nick Wildhagen, the editor of the Bundesliga Fanatic, who he has sort of describes himself as taking uh, currently a fatherhood-induced hiatus. But, you know, you, you found time to be on a podcast tonight. That's great. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's great to be finally back. It's been too long. And, you know, we've, we've got plenty of stuff to talk about and, you know, refereeing decisions as well, which is always a, a fun topic that we do like to dig into. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's, it's funny because some refereeing decisions just absolutely bore the pants off of me. But I got pretty exercised about both of the uh, prominent red cards this weekend, and you probably were, are going to have to stop me from talking about them because I thought they were really a big bummer. Oh, so <laughs> anyway, um, we have a lot to talk about, not only the aforementioned, but also setting up some of the good matchups in the DFB Pokal this week. All sorts coming up after the break. All right, here we go with part one of Talking Foosball. This is the part of the podcast where we talk about the best of the match day that has just gone. This one was match day 20. You know, we're, we're, we've gotten over the hump in the uh, the league this year. We, we we know quite a few things. And and one of the things that we know is that this title race is probably going to go on for quite a while yet. The reason why I say that with such certainty is that, uh, <laughs> you know... <laughs> How many lead changes have we had in the last th couple of weeks? I mean, we, we had Gladbach holding steady for about eight or nine weeks in the middle part of the the, the, the Hinrunde. Then uh, Leipzig taking over at the very end. They have dropped off. Bayern are now back on top. But there's still only three points now separating first place from fourth place. We got Bayern on 42, Leipzig on 41, Dortmund and Gladbach level on 39 points. Just... And, and I, I feel like I asked this question to start the podcast uh, many, many weeks, especially with the folks who haven't been on the podcast in a while. But I really want to get your general sort of temperature on the fact that we have a really active four-way title race in the Bundesliga this year that uh, has taken a lot of twists and turns already and, and, and looks to take quite a few more. What, how are you feeling? I mean, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm really surprised that Gladbach have been keeping you know, I've managed to keep up with the rest of the pack for that long and actually led the pack for quite some time, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, when they first took the lead in the table, I thought, well, you know, it's it's only going to be a couple of weeks. Maybe they, they sort of uh, have that enthusiasm in the club. But then the first two or three defeats keep coming and, you know, Bayern and Dortmund and, and you know, all the, the, the usual suspects are going to take them over. But, you know, they, they haven't dropped off, which is great to see. And um, I think we're probably going to talk about the game against Leipzig, uh, where they really helped, we absolutely are. really helped their own against uh, a fellow title contender uh, away from home, which is, um, you know, a great result in, in many regards. And then you have, do have the fact that you have Erling Breut-Horland at Borussia Dortmund, which is great from a Norwegian perspective, because um, suddenly everybody at work asked me, how do you get tickets to the Westfall Signal, Signal Iduna Park, Westfalshire, and what is it? Um, 
can, can you can you help me? I, I mean, I, I really want to go. I've been interested in Dortmund for so many years now. But you know that that kid, seven goals, eight goal shots. He is incredible, and you know Dortmund might just have another Robert Lewandowski on their hands. And you know the real Robert Lewandowski. He's not nineteen like Brad Holland. He's thirty-one. So you know some some really big storylines coming out of all of that. Excellent, excellent. I, I I couldn't agree more that you know there's there's a lot to get excited about right now. I do actually want to dig into that game between Leipzig and Gladbach. I think there was it, the, certainly the way the game played out was unexpected to me. And and first of all, just how strong Gladbach were, how how sort of well prepared they seemed to be for this matchup. Leipzig. You know, we know what they present. They present generally a, a very hard-running, very, you know, sort of tough-to-beat side on, in just about every phase of the game, especially, you know, when they're playing at home. And, man, in that first half against Gladbach, <laughs> Gladbach took it to them. They absolutely pressed uh, Leipzig in a way that Leipzig didn't seem like they were really ready for. There were some pretty key turnovers, which led to uh, big chances for for Gladbach. They, they were extremely well taken goals, you know, especially that second goal, which um, you know, I think it was. Uh, Florian Neuhaus sort of played one time when he sort of unexpectedly recovered the ball and to free up Jonas Hofmann for for that second goal. Like, whoa, the, these were. The kinds of goals that it takes not only a certain quality of player to execute, but a team who's really up for it and a team who's sort of, you know, ready for the unexpected and ready to cause the unexpected. I was hugely impressed with with what they did in the first half, and, and maybe we'll get to it in a minute, but the second half uh, didn't quite play out for them. <laughs> well, yes. Uh, I mean, the first half was probably... Um one of the greatest half of football Gladbach have played all season. And you mentioned the second goal there. Uh, Lucas Klostermann, fullback at international level, uh, you know, plays for, for the German national team. He, he he actually makes a terrible hash of that pass, but he really didn't have an awful lot of options on his on his hand there, did he? So um, that sort of mistake was, um, well, whilst it's not excusable, it's understandable uh, from a footballing point of view. You know, forcing a that type of play to make such a mistake, which Gladbach effectively did, it, it says it all about the first half. And the fans at the at the Red Bull Arena, whatever that concrete ball in Leipzig is called these days, uh, they the Central Stadion they, they, in, in in our world, the Central Stadion, which uh, yes, it used to be called, they 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 booed and jeered Rasenballsport of the pitch, uh, which really says it all, um, and. You know, the second half, as you mentioned, it got off to a great start with uh, Schick pulling one back. And then there was that one scene that really annoyed us both, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for a game that ended in a 2-2 draw, there was definitely a certain point in the game that everything sort of turned on. Uh, and that was, of course, the, uh, the, the red card, or I suppose it was, you know, officially a yellow you know, accumulation. It was a two yellows turn into a red situation. But it was basically Alassane Playa, who had, you know, scored earlier in the game and looked really quite good in the first half. Got a little bit tired <laughs> of getting fouled from behind when he was, uh, you know, basically trying to, to move with the ball. And, you know, he coughed up the ball, didn't get the call that he wanted, and gave 
Tobias Stila uh, a piece of his mind about why he didn't get that call. And apparently Tobias Stila felt like um, he was a little bit too emphatic in the way that he gave him that piece of that mind. What, what is it that he said? What was the gesture he made? To me, it, it doesn't add up. It just doesn't add up to a, to a red card. Well, what he basically did to get that second yellow card was that he um, lifted his hand in disgust saying, putain which is the French word for damn. You know, as, as sporting language goes, uh, having played football myself at a lower league level, it's actually quite kind, to say the least. Seeing that as a yellow card offence is really quite ridiculous. I mean, Stieler went out, or, and, you know, credit where credit is due, going out after the match, explaining that those sort of decisions to the media is actually quite brave from a referee, so you should definitely be given credit for that. But, he, you know, he went out and he explained that second yellow card, and he explained, he told Sky that this sort of thing sets a bad example for amateur sports, which, you know, the DFB has issued a new guideline to referees that that sort of unsporting behavior should be punished more severely. But really, should we really punish raw emotion? I mean, that's all that basically is. It's it's not disrespectful in my book. It's just a piece of raw emotion. Do we want robots on the pitch? Do you just take any call and say, yeah, yeah, that's fine. You officiate. Yeah, yeah. And I, we'll, we'll get to the other red card from the weekend, which I had a problem with. And that one also sort of, although in a different dimension, boiled down to a question of raw emotion and how much players need to keep it under control uh, and, and what the consequences of it can be. Um, but I, I generally really agree that expecting players to tamp down every bit of emotional reaction that they have to a call, which I think I think it showed not only a, a degree of of cowardice on the part of the referee to uh, you know not want to hear his criticism, but it, there was also a bit of cowardly behavior going on from the television director in in, in this game. They were reluctant to show a replay of. You know, the moment at which Alessandro Playa either did or didn't get fouled. And, you know, for a lot of people who, who, who did get a chance to look at that tape, although they didn't show it very uh, forthrightly in the moment during the live broadcast, a lot of people think he had a point. <laughs> and, you know, arguing every call that you disagree with is certainly a uh, bad form from a player. But, I don't subscribe to the ethic that footballers should be, you know, just good, respectful little boys who always listen to what daddy says. I mean, I I, I don't want football to be like rugby. I don't. It's a, it's a more emotional, it's a more open game. It's a it's a people's game. It's it it's it's not like American football. It's not like rugby. We're not soldiers. It's it's a free for all, and I like it that way. Indeed, and um, I mean the next question. That yields is where do you where do you draw the line? Really, I mean, give you an example. Whenever a ball goes out of play, every every guy on the pitch just gets up his arm, saying it's ours, it's ours. You know, isn't isn't that isn't that you know sort of trying to trick the referee into making a wrong decision if the throw actually isn't yours? Should you punish that with yellow cards too? I mean, where where do you, I mean, yeah, that would be ridiculous. But where would you draw the line? I mean, you do have these small sort of sort of. Player, you need those small things where players are trying to get an edge, trying to get a wrong call in order to gain an advantage. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and I think also when when referees show a certain, um, I don't know, sense of 
speak about, you know, sort of jealously protecting their uh, authority. I think it sometimes backfires on them as well. When players see that a, that a referee is more interested in sort of, you know, being seen to be right or being seen to have authority rather than getting it right, I, a lot of players start to tune them out. Yeah. I mean, you, you see you see the referees that always get high, good ratings by players, and, and those are actually, first and foremost, uh, Manuel Grefer and uh, Dennis Attigan. Yeah. They are the player. They are the ones the players respect, and you, you know, you see that Grefer, who is that tall guy, two meters tall, police officer from Berlin. So you know he's going to be direct, and he's not going to take any crap. But you know, you can have a laugh with him. You can, you know, he he, he jokes on the pitch, and uh, he just keeps that calm around him, which is just so great to uh, just so great to watch. And you know, the the players actually take to that rather well. Yep. Yeah, I agree. But before we talk our listeners' ears off about uh, refereeing and our, our, our feelings about uh, how it should be conducted, which I, I think is pretty important uh, as we see in a game like this, which kind of did turn on a referee's decision, we should also talk about how much sort of, I don't know, moxie Leipzig showed to get back into this game. Obviously, it would have been a much tougher proposition had they been playing against 11 instead of 10. But you know, you got the feeling in the last, I don't know, 20 minutes of this game or so that, you know, not only were Leipzig turning the tables on Gladbach and getting back into this game, but I, I would not have been shocked in the least if they had gotten another goal in the dying minutes to to, to turn it all the way around. There, there was a lot of assault <laughs> going on. Yeah. Well, I mean, when that second goal came for Leipzig, you sort of were, were wondering, uh, how, how on earth is just just a draw? Shouldn't Leipzig have scored at least two or three more from the chances they've generated in the second half? I mean, granted, Lapach were one, one fewer guy on the pitch and it, it showed, but uh, Leipzig really turned the tables, as you said, and when that goal came, it was a Brilliant shot. Uh, truly a contender for the goal of the week from, uh, was it Nkunku? It was Nkunku. Who scored, you know, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't have an awful lot of pace. He just strikes it ever so sweetly and so well-placed, which is um, just great to watch. Um, and, you know, after that goal, actually Leipzig just kept pouring forward and you sort of had the feeling that if this game would have gone on for, let's say, five or ten more minutes, they would have gotten another one. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. What are your feelings now about Leipzig's title challenge? I mean, oddly enough, heading into the uh, the Rückrunde of this year's season with you know Leipzig on top of the table, and and you know starting off the uh, the second half of the season with a win, I thought that they were sitting pretty pretty. The last couple of weeks, I think, have clearly shaken a lot of folks' confidence in them. And they are on the verge of a very, very big game against Bayern Munich next weekend, which I think will probably have a lot to say about whether they are going to be participating in, in you know, a real title challenge for weeks to come or if they're just going to slip back into the likely Champions League candidates category. How confident are you feeling about Leipzig at the moment? There have been... I don't know, some question about how well they have played against top sides. They, of course, you know, lost in the uh, the Hinrunde at home against Schalke. They had it pretty tough against um, Gladbach. They've had it pretty tough against Dortmund, managed to get a draw in that game. They lost to Bayern in the first half of the season. It's, uh, it's not a great resume among the tip-top sides. 
Yeah, I mean, if you have a four-horse race, those are the matches that win you the championship in the end. The ones against your direct competitors. And um, as you mentioned, the results haven't been great. But yes, they have struggled. But uh, I misspoke. They, they drew with Bayern. It just kind of drew, felt like they, a loss. They drew with Bayern. Well, um, yeah, I, I didn't have any... I didn't, I didn't have all those results in my head. But yeah... I mean, yes, there, there are an awful lot of draws. There are no wins, and uh, wins obviously give you the edge. And um, you know what? I, if, if they win against Bayern, they're, they're clearly um, uh, still favourites or among the favourites to win. If they lose, they, they do drop back into that likely Champions League contender position. And, and, and that's fine for them too, because they're a young side. They do have a young coach, and... It's. Uh, I, I don't think that Leipzig are expecting to win the Bundesliga title this season with Nagelsmann. They do expect it at some point. But look at that team. Look at how young some of these guys still are and how they are going to develop uh, into a great, great side. And yeah, I, I, I don't think that losing against Bayern or not uh, becoming champions this season is going to be the end of the world for them. But at the end of the day, I, I do think, um, yeah, I... I uh, Bayern are most likely to win this in the end. Let's 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 I'm just sorry to say. let's just um, let's keep our options open until the very end, <laughs> Nick. Uh, you know we did that last season. Bayern won in the end. You know more power to them. Uh, they they've got a few more challengers this year, so I think we. I think we can only keep an eye on things. Looking ahead to this week, Gladbach, you know, no longer participating in the DFB Pokal. However, Leipzig. They are. They are at Eintracht Frankfurt. And uh, what, what do you make of, you know, whether that might be a more fruitful route for them to sort of achieve glory this season? I mean, they definitely are a team who, on their day, can really overpower a lot of opponents. And, and that might be a route for them rather than trying to win the league. Yeah. I mean, they've gotten close to winning the DFB Pokal on one occasion, uh, Leipzig. Yeah. Sure. Um, and you know, it's it's definitely uh, definitely against the side that um, has been weakened this season. Uh, Eintracht Frankfurt, for all of uh, Adi Hütter's technical acumen, um, they have been weakened severely, uh, and it shows. And they sort of are topsy turvy side that that do that can turn up for for their the best matches. But then, like on this weekend, they had a match against Fortuna Düsseldorf, who quite frankly have been dreadful all season. And they, they were lucky to get a point. So, yeah, I, uh, you know, going by how far down we've come in the competition, it's definitely one of the, the best routes to get a title for a site like RB Leipzig. But, having said that, Dortmund have an easy game against Werder Bremen. Or it should be easy. Bayern don't have any difficulties getting to the next round, I assume. So... You know what? We we might actually see a really really good lineup for the quarter and semifinals, and uh, you know Leipzig can take probably beat any of those sides on that day. Sure, sure. I you know, like so many other things in German football, everything hangs on the fate of Bayern Munich. It seems to me that when the years in which Bayern uh, get eliminated from the cup, everything feels a lot more wide open. You know, I, I could maybe see uh, Hoffenheim causing them some problems. Hoffenheim has certainly caused them problems in the league quite often in recent years. So there, there could be something to that. Yeah, so 
Bayern, they are they are taking on Hoffenheim and in the cup. Their opponents from this weekend in the league, Mainz, uh, they're out in in the the Pokal. Any thoughts briefly about Bayern's three one win over Mainz? I don't particularly have many. I think we talk about Bayern quite a lot um, on, on on the podcast, and really a three one win in Mainz for Bayern is just par for the course. It is, uh, but you know, if you haven't watched the goals, take a close look at Thiago's goal for the three nil. Which you know the those skills he shows that with his feet on on really, you know he just gets through the defense ever so sweetly, um, showing tremendous skill with his feet. Um, it's 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 really worth a watch. But yeah, three one away from home against Mainz, decent result and basically just a it's 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 a, one of those buying performances that are not particularly memorable, but it just gets them to the top of the league. Yeah, and and in a lot of ways, this was a performance that. I think, allowed them to take some time off. I mean, they were up 3-0 with 26 minutes on the clock and basically were able to take most of the rest of the day off, which is not a bad place to be when you have a a cup match at midweek followed by a very big league match uh, against Leipzig. And, and, you know, to your point about Thiago, I mean, this is his third goal in three games in the Rückrunde. And if he keeps scoring, even if he's not scoring every 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 game, but if he keeps scoring with some regularity and keeps you know starting and playing well, that's going to be the story of Bayern's title win. Uh, it's going to be that the season where where Thiago suddenly caught fire and <laughs> Bayern suddenly could not be beaten. All right, but you know what? I, I can think about Bayern. You know, yes, we do talk about them quite a lot, but uh, let's just play a very quick game um, because there are six guys who are on contracts that end in 2021. Yep. And I just give you the name and you tell me, should he go or should he stay? And just give me a very quick reason for that. Javi Martinez, 31 years old. Go. They don't need uh, a guy of that age and they've got a lot of cover there. Tiago. Stay. He's just, he's on his day, he's the best player in the Bundesliga. Manuel Neuer, who has Alexander Nubel breathing up his ass. Uh, go. I think Neuer would would actually do well to go. I think he would prove to a lot of people that um, if he went somewhere else and was successful, he could make an even stronger case for being the greatest goalkeeper ever. Well, the next one is really a no-brainer. Uh, Jerome Boateng. Oh, he should have already <laughs> gone there. He's 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 not invested in Bayern anymore. Well, there are two couple of interesting ones. Uh, David Alaba, twenty-seven years old. Who? Um, I think for his sake, um, I would say probably stay because I think he's always been thought of as as the young protege. And and you know, meanwhile, that's not true anymore. He's he's in his prime at this point, and I don't think he's gotten enough credit for Bayern's success over the last several years. So if he can become you know, along with, uh, you know, the likes of Kimmich and, and maybe Goretzka, the leaders of the next Bayern, I think uh, I think he can make a big, even bigger name for himself. Talking about Bavarian leaders, the last one of those names on that list is Thomas Müller. Go. And that is a tricky one for, for me because I'm sort of in two minds because the way he's been playing, he got another goal against Mainz, by the way. Yeah. The way he's been playing, he's actually been quite good ever since Hansi Flick arrived. But before that, you would have thought... Go, go for God's sake, Thomas. What are you still doing there? I actually want him to go uh, just because I want another set of fans somewhere else to experience the weird magic that is Thomas Müller. I mean, 
Thomas Müller is a player who, because he's associated with Bayern, this team that sort of dominates the league, and because he, he's kind of a big mouth and he's not always used the large platform that he has in a positive way, I think. I mean, you know, looking at the, the whole Özil germany team uh, uh, situation, I, I felt like he was outspoken in a, a not very great way. I don't have entirely warm feelings about Müller as, as a person, but uh, as, as a sporting figure, as, as, a, as a player, <laughs> he's... He is magic. And I, I would like for another set of fans somewhere to, to get to know how magic he can be. Well, there you go. Some buy-in service resumed after all. But where were we going before I interrupt you with my silly game? Oh, no, I loved it. I loved it. I, you know, it, it, it was, you, you caught me truly off guard. So I, had to, <laughs> I had to come up with answers for everybody. But, you know, we all think about Bayern enough to, to have some opinions ready about Bayern. I want to talk actually next about a team who many people had kind of written off in the title race just because of their extreme inconsistency in the first half of the season, their sort of inability to capitalize on all of the, um, I don't know, hosannas that were going on around them prior to the season's begin about how well they had spent their money, how well they had uh, improved their squad. And then they come out of the gate and they're, they're good, but they're not dominant. They're kind of, you know, frustratingly fallible, let's just say. It's Borussia Dortmund. Suddenly the narrative has changed 180 degrees, you know, 5-0 win over Union Berlin. Uh, you know, it's been three games now with, wait a second, hold on. It, it, we're going to, we have a, an actual Norwegian here in, in the podcast with us. We're going to have uh, an impromptu in session, a little seminar about how to say the man's name. So say it nice <laughs> and clear and slow, and then I'll do it and you can critique and, and we're going to get this right. All right, uh, it's Erling Braut Holland. Erling Braut Holland. Very nice. Very nice indeed. <laughs> All right, now uh, I'm going to return to just saying something a little bit more comfortable for my mouth. But now, you know, <laughs> the more you know, the more you know. So three games with, with Erling Holland, three games each with five goals for Dortmund in them. Uh, of those 15 <laughs> goals, uh, seven of them were from the young lad himself. Uh, two goals in this game against uh, Union for Holland. He also won a penalty, which, which Marco Royce converted. We have already covered how amazing this guy is, but we should probably just keep doing it because he keeps doing amazing things. He's, he's astonishing. He, I was so skeptical of this kid, not having watched a lot of full games. I'd seen highlights of him, but he, he's it. He's got it. He's so good. Yeah, he is. And um, actually I, I, I did, I did write an article for El Freunde uh, about. Uh, I know, I know. Tell me more. And what really is um, what really struck, really struck me in the, in the research process is, is the fact that he he came from a small place in, in Norway, which is it's not that far away from where I live, and you know he actually he actually had made a made up a duo uh, with a girl on top for, for Bruno, and, and that girl is a professional footballer, and there are three more guys coming from that same team who have turned professional. You know, five players out of a bunch of 40 have turned professional. So they did really have a good environment back when, when he grew, where he grew up. What is the name of this community? Brune. Brune. Uh, okay. which, which is, um, you know, 20 minutes on the train from where I live. Um, add to that the fact that his father was a footballer who's played Premier League football. Add to that that he actually has, you know, <laughs> his head firmly planted on his, on his shoulders and that he's not going to go mad. 
Uh, you know, he does have the skill set to become a really great European striker, and he does have, you know, the ability not to go entirely crazy after three such matches that he's just had. That's just something about who he is, I think. And add to that all the skills that he has. I mean, he's so quick for a guy his size. Timo Horn got caught by surprise. Ginkiewicz got caught by surprise. I mean, he's that quick for a guy who's almost two meters tall. And to think that he actually, um, the guys who coached him during his younger years, when he was around 13, 14, they thought that, you know, yeah, he's a great player, but he's not tall enough. He might not make it as a professional. And suddenly when he turned 14, 15, he just had that growth spurt that, you know, saw him <laughs> rise above everybody else, which is, you know, it's it's funny you know, some, sometimes people think they've spotted a talent when they're 10, 12 years old and think, yeah, that guy's going to be great one day. Actually, not that... It's actually hard to tell because these things can change with age. Anyway, um, it's just a diversion. But yeah, uh, to, to think that he's, he's that quick, he's that good on the ball. And, you know, he's always getting into the right positions. He's just such... He, he just looks around, uh, he's, he always knows where the players around him are, and he always pops up in the right places, which is, you know, it's, it's sort of like a God-given talent for, for strikers, and he's got it. Yep. Yeah, and the, and the, the variety of goals that he scored already from, from you know, sort of tap-ins off of crosses to mop-up goals when there's a loose ball in the box to goals on the run. You know, he's, he's shown off a, a, an amazing skill set already. I want to tap in a little bit to... You know the feeling of of the you know Norwegian football community about this guy because you know there is a certain amount of of you know distance in a way. I mean, he was born in England when you know his his dad was playing over in in you know Leeds. He's you know spent a fair bit of time away from Norway. He left at a, at a fairly early age for a Norwegian footballer. I mean, obviously not, not as, not as early as, as, uh, the last giant phenom who's, you know, eventually getting there. Uh, but it's a little rare for someone to leave at what age 16 and a half, 17, when he went to Salzburg or something like that. 17, 17, 18. Yeah. I mean, are, do people feel a closeness to this kid? Is there a sense that like, this is our young hope? Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, most definitely is. I mean, ever since he joined Borussia Dortmund, he's been on the front page of my local newspaper pretty much every day. <laughs> Which, you know, no, you know, where I live, nobody cared about the Bundesliga until just now. Which is, for, for me, it's great news because suddenly people ask me questions and I, d I don't seem like the odd one out anymore. Suddenly it's it's cool to talk to me about football. Uh, yeah, d didn't everybody reckon that he was going to go to the Premier League, go to, go to Man United and, and you know... Yeah, I, I I do have a few Man United fans that work, and they were utterly shocked uh, by how this turned out. And now one of them actually asked me if I could fix him up with, uh, you know, a few tickets to the Westfalen Stadium, which is nice. The actual theater of dreams, indeed. No, but I mean, it, it it has changed the perception of the Bundesliga because you know a player like Jarstein is great, a player like Shelbert is great. A player like Valon Berisha, who just joined Fortuna Dusseldorf, is, is great. But those players don't get asses in seats in front of the television sets. Holland does. Yep, yep. He is box office pure. Anyway, uh, any any further sort of thoughts about um, where this leaves Borussia Dortmund? I, I kind of feel like 
there's a, not a lot of players who basically can change an entire season's narrative all by themselves. Holland just happens to be one of them. Uh, and, and under the radar, there's other good stories going on, which is to say, you know, Jaden Sancho, the little dip in form that he was experiencing at certain points in time in the Henry is, is most definitely over. Um, he's, he's, you know, getting a goal a game and, and setting up goals as well pretty regularly. Um, you know, Gio Reyna's getting a little bit of minutes uh, just about every game in the, in the, uh, the Rukunda and, you know, by the end of the season might actually be a real contributor. A lot of good things are happening for them. Add to that, Amrichan just arrived at Borussia yep, Dortmund. No doubt. He didn't get any playing time uh, as he joined the day before the match or two days before the match. But yeah, I mean, a, a lot of good stuff is going on at Borussia Dortmund and uh, Haaland most definitely is, is the biggest news of uh, of that, of those stories developing at Dortmund at the moment. But yeah, he is the sort of player who can change the narrative of the season if he produces the sort of performances against the likes of Bayern and Schalke and, you know, Borussia Mönchengladbach. If he does get goals against them and decides games for Dortmund against those opponents, Borussia Dortmund might actually bring a surprise and win the league in the end. Who knows? What a spectacular story that would be after everyone wrote them off. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Dortmund have have uh, a, a, an interesting game coming up in, in the, the day of Papal Call. We'll talk about that in just one moment. Union has one that's also very interesting. They, they were 5-0 losers in this one. I don't, I'm not prepared to, to really um, draw a lot of conclusions for Union after this game. I, I still have a lot of confidence in them, at least. They actually, they actually got a few chances in that match. Uh, they did. Uh, has to be they could have gone um, up 1-1-0. One, one, no I mean, they, they could have gone 1-0 up. They did have chances 2-4, 2-1, and a 3-1 go. Uh, they, they had at least three or four decent chances to get goals during that match. I mean, if that had been more effective, it could easily have been a 5-2 or 5-3. Yep. Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of small teams get rolled at the Westfalenstadion. It's, yeah. it's not a big deal. It's, it's, not, it's not a shame to lose 5-0, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they have to go away to uh, another perhaps intimidating atmosphere. That is a way to face S.A. Fair uh, of, of the Regional League of West. Um, <laughs> you are often a man of tidbits, uh, <laughs> Nick Wildhagen. <laughs> I, I don't want to put you completely on the spot here, but do you have any tidbits ready for, for S.A. Fair? No, actually, you, you caught me off guard. Uh no, I don't have any tidbits. Uh, I think they've been as high up as, as the third division. Maybe they've actually spent a year or two in the Bundesliga too. But um, yeah, SFL, I don't think I've ever watched a match of theirs, uh, which is to say I, I don't even know where they are from within Germany. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Google that To be shit. honest, <laughs> I, I'm looking at a Google Earth picture of of their stadium here and i I see a neighborhood surrounding uh three sides of the stadium i see uh uh, the stadium has a very small ring of seats which means there's probably not a lot of seats to be had there's some practice pitches and then there's a lot of green which means (laughs) this is a there's a lot of countryside surrounding this team and and this town so i think that that union are going to be in for uh, a very unfamiliar atmosphere after the, uh, you know, the, the the urban experience that is that is uh, you know 
playing in Berlin or playing in Dortmund or what have you. All right, I, I, I did get on Google rather quickly, and I do have a, I do have a bit of a tidbit here. Um, I love uh, it. They do actually have. Um, they have played mostly in the fourth tier of German football, and but they do have uh, a number of players who've played international matches, which is great. Newsmaster Bamba played uh, three uh, games for the Dem- Democratic Republic of Congo. Nice. Osvani Labo played six games for Togo. Etienne Barbara played 30 games for the Malta national team. I was about to say, I, I knew there was going to be a Maltese international among this group. I just felt it coming. And uh, Heinrich Schmidtger, 15 games for um, for the Kaz- uh, Kazakhstan national teams, um, which is, you know, which is great. Um, some of you may actually remember him as the guy who played for... Roy to third during their season in the Bundesliga. Spectacular. There you go. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? There might be more. Uh, there might be more seasons in the Bundesliga for uh, Fjord in store. Uh, you can maybe some stage of this uh, of this uh, season. We should probably turn our attention to the second division. Do you have they do have a Norwegian striker as well, Morgan Nilsson. Norwegian strikers seem to be you know they're 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 all the rage. They're they're in vogue. They're all the rage. Yeah. Do you okay? <laughs> turning turning our attention to Dortmund and their fate in the Pokal. They are at home to the walking wounded, which is to say, uh, SV Werder Bremen. Do you give your boys any chance in this game? Should they even really take this game seriously, considering the uh, predicament they're in in the league, which we will be getting to momentarily? <laughs> well, David Salka was uh, rather optimistic after that two-one defeat against Augsburg, saying that. Um, you know what? Games in the Pokal, they actually can give you confidence and change the course of the season. And, of course, Davies Selke is right. But um, is this particular Pokal game going to change the course of the season? And if I was a betting man, I would most definitely say no. Because having watched Werder uh, quite closely this season, they've scored three goals in the last seven matches in the Bundesliga. Three. Two of them have been own goals. And they've conceded, I think, 19 or 20. So they do concede three goals per match on an average, and they do score less than half a goal. And two-thirds of those goals are scored by players of the opposition. The last goal scored by a Werder player was actually in the 6-1 defeat against Bayern München by Rashica, uh, which was on, I think, match day 15. Yeah, that was match day 15, beginning of the English Woche. Take a look at take a look at that sort of form curve. Take a look at how things have developed after the winter break. I mean, they've won one against a uh, fellow relegation contender from an own goal, and then they lost against a very lackluster uh, Hoffenheim side. Which you know, Hoffenheim didn't turn up for this match, and Werder somehow managed to gift them three goals, and Augsburg didn't turn up for the first half, and somehow Werder just threw the game away in the second half. So, you know, you, you don't, you, you see that the team is so out of balance because of the injuries. You see that the signings uh, from the start of the season and during the winter break are not working out. I mean, all credit to for Bauman, to Bauman to getting Kevin Fogwood, who is a great defender. But, you know, David Salka, I'm not that confident that he's going to be a great signing that's going to save Werder. Leonardo Bittencourt really has had a dreadful season. Irma Toprak, you know, he's been more injured than he's been on the pitch. Uh, Marco Friedel, who was on loan at Verde, he's been signed. He's really been crap. 
Ludwig Augustinsson's out with him. You know, I mean, there's so many reasons that you could say that Werder are in dire straits. If Dortmund doesn't win this, it, it would be truly, truly a big, big upset. I would agree. If, you know, those, those figures you mentioned just a moment ago about uh, the average game for a team like better at the moment is to, you know, score, score half a goal and uh, give up three. This is actually a slightly better result this weekend than, than some, losing only 2-1 to uh, Augsburg. But it wasn't a very heartening uh, situation. I mean, as you said, they had a pretty good showing in the first half and, and you know, did, were gifted a goal through a, a pretty strange sequence of events, which, uh, you know, Tinyedvai was unlucky to to you know get a foot on that goal and, and steer it into the net, but the way that they were overpowered in the second half of this game, the way that they were unable to sort of um, do anything with with the, the goal advantage and, and in many ways uh, you know momentum advantage that they had enjoyed in the first half of the game was pretty telling. I mean, this is a this is a team that has had it bad for some time and doesn't seem to know how to get out of the funk that they're in. Let's talk a little bit, you know, not necessarily about signings or about injuries, but like, what is it that's making this team not function right now? I mean, you, you watch just about every game that they play. Like, why can't they create chances? Why can't they keep goals out? What are the sort of the fundamentals of what's wrong? I, I mean, the, the point that I started to think that Verda are going to go down was actually just after the match against Hoffenheim last week, when I watched the interviews with David Clarsen saying, well, this wasn't actually a bad game. This was, this should have been a draw. Man, you just lost 3-0. And you played a dreadful pass in the first half that should have been a goal to Hoffenheim. You put the, you put the first goal into your own net and you think this should have been a draw? I mean, come on, man. Once you've put that ball into your own net... What was the response of the team? There was absolutely nothing. And you played against an opposition that didn't turn up for the day. But all you managed to create were shots from outside the box. I mean, the second choice keeper for Hoffenheim is just filling in for, for Oliver Baumann. Penke, he's, he's, he's never made money let more easy than against Werder Bremen. I mean, what did he have to do? You, you know, you didn't create any sort of chances that challenged the goalkeeper or challenged goal. Nothing, nothing. And you think that should have been a draw? That's what you. That's your big takeaway. And you add to that, you know, we showed against Fortuna Düsseldorf what we actually are capable of. Well, you won a game against a shitty side that is about to go down through an own goal, and you think that's great, really? And you're this team captain. I mean. Uh, you know that that attitude and you know that way of thinking. If if you if you're stuck in that sort of way of thinking, you are about to go down. I'm sorry to say. I mean, if if nobody just starts speaking up and say, "Guys, we're really in the shit here, and we need to take some drastic measures." Sorry, it, it's not it's not going to happen. And you know, if winning games through own goals by inept keepers is is cause for celebration. Yeah, yeah, you're pretty much fucked. One of their big problems this season has been goal scoring. I mean, other than Milot Rashica, who you know has has pitched in, okay, he's been a consistent uh, you know performer and, and goal scorer. They've had a lot of trouble scoring. This game against Augsburg, they sort of shuffled the pack. I mean, Davies Elka was signed literally 
the day before. He went straight into the starting lineup. Uh, a, a youth player who was got his his debut, I believe, uh, Nick Voltamata, was thrown into the starting lineup. Youngest player ever to play for Verde on the Bundesliga. There you way. go. There you go. I mean, I, I get it with 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 Zelka. He's sort of your big name, you know, prodigal son returning. He's got a lot of Bundesliga experience. But that was kind of grasping at straws for me, putting this this kid in uh, yeah. in, in the, the the front three. I, I don't know what he was thinking. It didn't really seem to work out, did it? Yeah, it didn't. Uh, he, he seemed really unsure, and he really seemed to be caught off guard by the pace of the game. But you know, that's not surprising because he hasn't even played a, a match for the second team for for the under twenty threes at fourth tier level. He's you know only played for the under nineteens. And going from the under-19s directly into the Bundesliga game and into the relegation dogfight, it might actually do a player more harm than good, going by how his confidence is going to be hurt. And if he doesn't do well, and, you know, I, I don't think he did particularly well, not trying to be too harsh on him here, but given the circumstances, it's understandable. And yeah, those were two of the guys. And then you had Rashika, who's been... You know, he hasn't produced anything of notes ever since he got that goal against Bayern München that we just talked about. He um, might already be sorting through offers for, for the next summer uh, at this stage uh, because a player of his class is, is not going to stay at, at a club like Werder Bremen. And, you know, the, 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 pl- the problems of, at the club are going... They're so utterly, utterly many of them and they... Are so deeply rooted within so many aspects of how this team is run. I mean, for one thing, there's the squad which is unbalanced. There's the midfield that hasn't produced any sort of good football, who's not capped the stability that you would expect from from midfield. But at the end of the day, uh, there's too many injuries, and the players who are on hand, you wouldn't expect them to do. A, great job if they filled in. Um, so Kovac really has no options on his hands. Uh, his hands are forced. If you brought in another coach, he would play the exact same guy. So you pretty much fuck there too. And then you have Frank Bauman who, you know, he, he thinks he's clever um, loaning players with an obligation to buy. And in that way, you know, he doesn't have to pay the transfer fee straight away, but he pays it next season which allows him to, you know, pick a player and sell him on and, you know, balance the budget. And, you know, yeah, fair enough. That's a great account, accounting credit, probably. But, you know, when the guys you bring in are Bittencourt and Toprak and the guy you have to sell is probably Rashica or Eggestein, yeah, you're not doing a particularly great job, are you? Yep. Yep. You've, you've talked, I think, around the, uh, the serious, you know, squad issues and, and sort of transfer policy issues. And I think we could, you know, probably could go on with that. And I think you make a decent case for Florian Kofeld's hands being tied here. However, as the season wears on and as the sort of results and uh, table position continues to be very uh, alarming <laughs> for, for Werder Bremen, how soon do they have to consider making a move? Two or three match, match days from now. I mean, I mean, Florian Kofeld is a, is a coaching talent. It's It's... The coach that has um, that the officials of that have said um, is probably the best coach that has come out from within the club in uh, you know ever since Thomas Schaaf. But at some point, your hand is forced. At some point, you have to try whatever you can do to turn these things around. And you know, getting a boost by bringing in a new coach 
even if it's like a you know Bruno Labadee, Felix Magan, Peter Neubauer, whoever really. You're really going down the slippery slope there. Yeah, you are because you know once once those guys have had their two or three matches where you know results have slightly improved, you find out that the team is quite. It's still crap, really, and it's 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 not really a side that, uh, as it turns out, is, is as things stand, good enough to be in the Bundesliga. I'm sorry to say. Yep, yep. They've got coming up after that uh, Pokal match, which you know may or may not turn around their season, uh, Davy. Uh, they've got uh, a home game to Union, potentially winnable. Uh, away to Leipzig, home to Dortmund, and home to Frankfurt. So we'll, we'll check back in on old Florian Kofeld, uh somewhere around. After the Frankfurt match, around. if he's still there. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, if he takes six points from those four matches, I think he might be just fine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, for sure. I think six points would be a good return there. But, you know, Union, you know, I, I think they, they... They're no mugs. Yeah, they, 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 they look a lot better despite, you know, just losing in match 5-0. They look a lot better than Werder does. And... Eintracht Frankfurt, yeah, probably the better side. So, um, but that's four weeks from now. So, a lot can happen within the world of football in four weeks. So, clutching the straws, <laughs> clutching the straws. All right. Uh, so, leaving behind uh, the, the 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 doom, the gloom of uh, uh, Nick's favorite side in the Bundesliga, we're going to take a short break, and we will come back with uh, a new dawn for my favorite team. Don't go away. All right, here we are with part two of Talking Foosball. I think that the, uh, you know, the, the, the headlines surrounding uh, this particular team we're going to start with would certainly have merited uh, inclusion with the best of Match Day 20. But the, the game that they actually played on Match Day 20 was so far from the best, so deserving of inclusion in the rest. Uh, I, I think we're going to have to play it this way. Uh, it's Hertha BSA. They drew nil-nil with Schalke Nulfia. It's sort of the first of a two-game league and then cup set that uh, these two teams are playing against each other. It was definitely not a looker of a game unless you love matches where both teams keep a very compact defense and, and limit chances for each other for a full 90 minutes. You know, what, what could be more fun than that? But I, I think we should probably address some of the stuff that surrounded this game. And, and by that, I mean... We had the debut of uh, Christoph Piotek, who is, you know, an extremely expensive player by uh, Hertha BSA standards. But lately, he's just been getting less and less comparatively expensive because Hertha cannot stop spending money. Um, they have spent $10 million in the winter window for Santiago uh, Ascasibar. They spent $25 million for Luca Tussar, who is not even coming until the summer from Olympique Lyonnais. $15 million from uh, RB Leipzig for Mateus Cunha. That's, you know, if you're keeping score back at home, that's 77 million euros on players in the winter window alone. Did you watch this game? Did you see anything from Piotrek that would give you the idea that this is going to be a guy who can take the Bundesliga by storm? Because I wasn't like, you know, not convinced, but he, he, he looked okay to me. I mean, he, he looked okay. He did have a finish, uh, like, you know, quite cheeky finish where he um, 
was within the box and he just had gotten past him and he finished that move off so quickly that you thought, yeah, oh, you can spot something here. He hasn't played an awful lot at, at Milan of late, yep. uh, if reports are to be believed. So the fact that he's a bit out of form is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a reasonable thing. Uh, give him minutes here and there or maybe start him in the next few weeks and you might see those balls going in. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I thought the difference having him as the tip of the spear versus Dodi Lukobakio was was pretty stark. I like Dodi Lukobakio pretty well. I do not like him as a lone striker at all. He's generally way too slow at settling the ball. He likes to sort of set himself up for his shot very, I don't know, uh, very carefully. And a lot of times he gets dispossessed by the time he actually gets his shot off. And man, Piatek, he's the opposite. I mean, he has a quick trigger. We saw that on him. We, he has a trigger from all kinds of angles. He's willing to go for interesting different techniques. He tried to near post, uh, you know, Nubil in this game. He tried a, a sort of looping back of the head header on a corner kick. I think um, he's just got a lot more, <laughs> a lot more tools in the arsenal for, for, a, for a striker. There's, there's a certain repertoire there. Yeah, he, he looked actually quite... Uh, he, he looked he looked like a breath of fresh air in a game that was rather stale that saw her to dominate but not really creating the big chances they were hoping for and you know her to they would have never expected to win a game against Schalke uh, two or three years ago but these days with all that money on their hands a team like Schalke looks you know a reasonable opposition to beat at home. Oh yeah, yeah. We we're we're peers now, Nick. We're we're you know the kind of team who can spend big money on players with, you know, we can do it three or four times in a week, <laughs> as we just learned. Um, just sort of breaking down the spending here. I mean, I know that the fact that Tussar is not with the club yet and won't be for several months, and the fact that Cunha um, is is off playing with you know the Brazil youth national team at the moment will be back for another week or two. Um, it's hard to, to assess those from the sort of rubber hitting the road uh, aspect. But I am nervous about how much money we've spent. But I look at the individual purchases, and I think that they actually got pretty decent deals on everybody. I think um, if, this is the, if this is the league you want to play in now financially, I think this, they, they did okay business. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean... The question becomes with these sort of projects um, is, is the fact, are you looking at the character of the players? Are you looking at how these different pieces fit into one team? You know, team chemistry. Are you maybe ruining something by taking players like Kalu, you know, basically showing them the door, deserved players who've been at the club for many, many years, and you just say, all of that isn't worth a damn shite because now we are going to be a big city club as last winter's new sugar daddy would put it. So, I mean, those are questions that are going to be answered during the course of the Rekunde, but, you know, going by, by the individual purchases, Asuka Sieber in particular, who came for you know, a player of his quality, usually goes for 25, 30 millions these days, but, you know, since he's played in the Bundesliga 2 for half a year, you get him for 10, which is a, it's a great deal. Absolutely a great deal. So yeah, at, at the end of the day, those questions need to be answered, but I agree with you. All those purchases individually make sense. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm a little concerned about the sort of fetish that has been developed for, um, you know, hardworking central midfielders. Obviously, you want to have some of those guys on hand, but it, it's it's clear that some players have already gotten sort of rubbed the wrong way about that, uh, specifically Arne Maia, the uh, sort of fairly highly touted, um, you know, Germany youth international who's been occupying that space off and on. He's not strictly a six. He's really more of an eight or even a 10. Um, so I, I'm not sure why he sort of had a bit of a flip out this past week about, you know, wanting to leave the club, being afraid of his playing time. You know, he actually got substitute minutes uh, against Schalke. He didn't actually play that well. <laughs> he did look out of sorts. He had a lot of rust on his boots, his, his yellow uh, standout boots. But I still, I still really quite like him as a player, and I, I think that there is definitely a way for him into this side, especially if it's a side that learns to play in a very different way. When it comes to guys like Kalu and Ibisevic, um, Ibisevic has actually kept his mouth shut for the most part. And, and interestingly, I, I noticed that in the uh, the live broadcast that you get on uh, Fox Soccer Match Pass, which you know doesn't have commercials, you just get the sort of the raw feed during halftime. It showed him walking down the stairs, not not taking the escalator. <laughs> as is possible in, in uh, uh, the Olympia shoddy and walking down the stairs with Piontek trying to sort of, you know, tell him things about what he was, he had seen out on the pitch. You know, it looked like he was already sort of thinking that this could be an interesting, um, you know, opportunity for him. This would be a, a, a cool way to sort of help a new player uh, get, get into this, this league in some, some way. So I, I, I was pleased to see that. But, you know, anytime you have older players who are top earners, who are kind of in the last year of their contract, it's a bumpy ride for the last six months. And I'm not surprised that uh, Solomon Kalou has has felt a little bit on the outside looking in. I mean, even at the beginning of the season when, when Ante Chovic was, was still around, like, he wasn't getting any time. It was clear that they were kind of like, buddy – Get thee to, to MLS or, uh, or or an English team with more money than cents. It's 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 not happening anymore for you. <laughs> well, it, it's going, it's definitely exciting times ahead at Hertha because uh, you know there's the money, which is a new dimension. I, I looked at the numbers for Hertha uh, just recently, and uh, I found out that Hertha spent 44 million euros on the transfer market during the during the Dada years, earning 44.8, which you know. Makes them a slight profit during those four years. Now they actually run a deficit of 89 million euros this year alone. So something has changed rather drastically. Jürgen Klinsmann, uh, really a guy who does look into the fine details of an organization. He does look into the fine details of, uh, you know, the holistic approach to training sessions. I mean, Jürgen Klinsmann himself, he actually learned how to run during his teens uh, at Bay Stuttgart because he had a brother who was a 400-meter runner uh, who, uh, you know, took him into the training sessions with the, with the runners and, you know, they told him, you te- dude, your technique, is, it's off, it's off. If you run like you run, you actually are much slower than you actually are. So he had that experience and he actually has transferred it to the way he's actually approaching how football teams should be coached. And he's sort of drawn inspiration from all sorts of sports. But where he's not great, though, is tactics. And that's where Alexander Nuri comes in. And you know what? Um, as a Bremen fan, I know that he turned things around for 
slightly more than a season, but then that effect wore off and it got rather dramatic for Werder in the end and he had been to Ingolstadt where it really made a hash out of things. So knowing those things, what do you make of having him alongside Klinsmann who, you know, is a guy who's left the fine details of how sides should enact their tactics on the pitch to his assistants? I don't have a problem with the the sort of you know, division of labor. I think that we've seen in enough different stations along his career that um, Klinsman just doesn't have much of any clue about, um, you know, a tactical game plan or, or coming up with a sort of, you know, a game model as uh, coaches like to talk about these days, whether it's uh, an overall game model or, or one for, for an individual game against an individual opponent. He just doesn't have a talent for that. No, he's, he's got a rough, rough idea of how he wants to play. And he leaves that, you know, the fine details, you know, where, how should the strikers move and all that sort of crap that is wins your matches. He leaves that to the assistants. Yeah. And that's where Nuri comes in. Isn't, isn't that a scary proposition given his record or do fans like you think, well, he, he deserves a chance to prove what he's good at? I don't want them in charge long term. You know, I, I would prefer to see a coach with a much more distinct tactical character uh, brought in and, and to have Klinsmann sort of take over the sort of project manager um, work that he's kind of already doing. I, I would I would like to see Klinsmann stick around in some capacity, but I don't think it's important for him to be you know, listed as the head coach. Where would that leave Michael Pretz, who obviously hasn't made a lot of decisions at the club of late, it seems? Well, I mean, if you think of him, like some some German clubs have people who they call Kaderplaner, people who are sort of, you know, brought in to think about how the squad is constructed, not only in a sort of year-to-year sense, but like, who sort of manages the lengths of contracts and where the where the team is headed in a one, three, five, et cetera, year trajectory. And I think those things, um, those things are, are actually pretty good from from Michel Preitz. Like Michel Preitz has shown an absolute um, lack of talent in choosing coaches, but really a lot of, of, of nous when it comes to um, buying and selling players. He often um, finds players who are you know either cheap for silly reasons or or guys who are sort of undervalued and and then selling them for a bit more and i see no reason to believe that that some of these expensive players who they just bought can't be sold in a number of years for more than we bought them for i mean ask a bar we could probably sell next week if the transfer window is open uh, for more than 10 and and i think that goes for for a number of these players i mean matias cunha is a player who you know, the only reason why he cost uh, $18 million is because he's not getting playing time with Leipzig. And and the reason why he's not getting playing time at Leipzig is because Leipzig have, like, you know, five extremely good um, forward players who he can't quite get past or he doesn't have a sort of a, a chemistry with. There's no reason why, why, why Cunha can't find that at Hertha. If he gets playing time and he produces, he could very easily turn into a, a $30, $40 million or euro player. And, and you know, it would... Look out! Look very rosy in the end for Michel Preitz. I, I'm super confused about what's going on behind the scenes at Hertha. I, I really hope that the relationships don't break down completely because, you know, when you get a lot of money like this, you you gotta, you gotta make something of it. And just staying in the league is uh, not gonna cut it after this year, you know. 
No, no, it's not. It's not. And yeah, it's, it's going. It's going to be interesting to see because um, you know you had you had that summer transfer window and you got totally lucky, Bucky, and then you thought, wow, that that is Hertha's big signing for this season. <laughs> you know the the team struggles and suddenly they decide, well, no, we bring in let's spend the same amount of money or a little bit more on four more guys, which um, you know it seems to be sort of out of sorts, but. When you think of a guy like Klinsmann, he is a guy of big, bold ideas. So spending this amount of money during the winter might as well have been his idea, I would imagine. Yep, yep. And it was interesting. When Jurgen Klinsmann first started running his mouth about Hertha and and saying uh, things like, this is the most exciting footballing project in Europe, a lot of people laughed. And I understand where they were coming from um, because Hertha is... (laughs) Not exactly a byword for uh, excitement and hasn't been for for many years. But I knew exactly what he meant, uh, and I trusted him. I was like, you know what? This guy knows from exciting projects. He's been a part of them before. He, you know, basically remade Germany. He remade the United States until it sort of fell apart in the end when he couldn't find an adequate assistant to sort of carry out his tactical ideas. But you know, he's got big ideas and Vinthorst has big money. So, yeah, there's going to be excitement in this project. It's actually, it's actually quite exciting to see that uh, Jürgen Klitzmann is sort of really kissing Vinthorst's ass, to be quite frank, through through the media and in certain interviews where he's sort of saying like, you know, Lars has really gotten into football and he starts knowing his football really well. And, you know, Lars Vinthorst, he... What, he's a numbers guy. He ran the numbers of Herta and thought, well, actually, he is a money-making opportunity and that's what he wants to do with all of his investments he actually has admitted on several occasions that he really doesn't know a damn thing about football that's why he brought in Klinsmann in the first place and you know when you hear Klinsmann talk about that last winters in that fashion you would imagine well he is a guy who really wants to get his way and he really wants to have the money man on his side and and you know that would beg the question who's actually making the final calls here at the club Klinsmann, Winthorst, where are Gegenbauer, where Prez, but, you know, that could be a discussion that we could have uh, over the course of several hours. Yep, yep. I think we probably should move on. Um, I think that there's no reason why this can't all be a place where everybody comes out looking rosy because, you know, Michel Preitz has done good work for a long time, but his one main constraint has been not having much money and he's got had to get creative. And Who's to say he can't continue being creative at um, at just a higher level? I, I think that this window is it, it's drastic, of course, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, they did good business. So let's let's just hope hope that all works out. Uh, there are a few more games from this week which we should talk about in brief. We've already gone pretty long, so I, I don't want to talk about them very much. Uh, you know. Sorry, teams who we haven't gotten to yet. We'll hit you in another week. Um, Hoffenheim defeated uh, Bayer Leverkusen 2-1. This game was wild and woolly. Uh, and, you know, even Alfred Schroeder uh, after this game um, admitted that, you know, <laughs> Leverkusen could easily have won this game or, or it could have ended 5-5. Either one of those results would have been fair. This was pretty much the game we all hoped to see from from two teams who, you know, on their day, can play really good football. That's it, what you. That's what you get when you have two Dutch coaches. Yeah, yeah, man. Dutch football. Eh? I'll take it. Me too. We had Fortuna Dusseldorf and uh, 
Eintracht Frankfurt. Pretty interesting set of, uh, of circumstances surrounding this game. Of course, Uwe Rössler, who uh, is the new coach of Fortuna Düsseldorf after Friedhelm Funkel finally got the sack. They held on to a lead until very, very deep into injury time, until one <laughs> Timothy Chandler, who, you know, who is suddenly first choice on the right wing for Frankfurt, and he's been making the most of his his new attacking role. He's gotten another goal. He you know tied the game up, brought the Eagles level. Interesting sub story coming out of Frankfurt. There, a guy who basically was you know thought of as as your second choice right back, um, suddenly is your first choice ring, winger and is killing it. I mean, he's not only scoring goals, his his crosses are great. His sort of interplay with, you know, both the guys up front and Philip Kostic is really good. It's, it's It's been shocking. Yeah, but, you know, we've we've been watching Timothy Chandler for many years now and ever since he arrived at Nuremberg. And we do know that he's a great footballer. And, you know, great footballers, once they've actually hit their stride and they have an upturn in form, they turn up in pretty much every match. Yeah, you know, uh, Timmy Timmy for Timmy for America. Let, let, let's start the bandwagon up again. You know what? Why not? Once why again, not? All is forgiven, Timmy. And by the way, uh, talking about Fortuna Düsseldorf, they, they do have put in charge Uwe Rösler, as you mentioned, who's uh, you know, a former Manchester City striker, uh, mostly known for his exploits uh, within English football. But he's He's got some Norwegian experience too. Yes, they do. he does, because he finished his career in Lillestrøm, uh, where he started to coach. He did have, or has, a Norwegian wife. I'm, I'm not as sure about his marital stat- status. I haven't checked up for some time. <laughs> let's let's last anyways, OK he does Magazine. Have, um, <laughs> Uwe in Norwegian trouble. Um, no, but, you know, he started his coaching career there, and he coached my side in Norway. My side, a German coach coaching my side. Little did I know how disappointed I would be when I found out that his big idea was to sign a guy called Marmon Young, who played at Wolfsburg, never got any real playing time, a Senegalese striker who was two meters tall, and all he could actually do was flick on long balls from the goalkeeper, hoping that somebody would run onto them. And that is what my side did to for you know his entire See, coaching stint as far as I remember it. So that when I think of Norwegian football, I think that's probably the primary tactic. But maybe I'm just biased here. No, nah, I mean they're, they're like, great coaches. Eagles. They're great coaches within Norwegian football, but Uwe Rosler wasn't necessarily one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had a brush with Uwe Rosler uh, many years too. Uh, back I, maybe twenty. I don't know, 11 or something like that. I, I uh, interviewed him for Deutsche Welle when he took over at, uh, at Brentford and, and was a super nice guy. I, I really yeah, enjoyed is. chatting with him for a while. He is. I interviewed him once as well for, for when I was doing student radio. And yeah, he's, he's a very lovely guy, I'm, but I'm not necessarily excited about his tactics. No, no, it'll be interesting. Some guy who's basically plied his trade in the, the lower divisions of England with, with certain exceptions suddenly being thrust into the Aston Bundesliga. Maybe maybe a, a, a relegation battle is probably the place where you want a coach like that in, in charge. But um, I don't know. I don't think he's got a lot of tools on his hands. Simple solutions are actually the thing that might get you out of the relegation dogfight. But where you go from that, where you go next season, you go straight back into that same fight if that guy keeps you up. That has been the story of many of these, you know, foyer their manner, as they are called. Pretty pretty surprising result from the early game on Sunday. That was uh, Cologne absolutely throttling uh, SC Freiburg. I guess 
I guess that can happen sometimes. Cologne have have certainly been a much stronger side since uh, Marcus Gisdol has uh, taken over. But man, a four nil result against uh, a team that was still, you know, a, a pretty solid top half side. I, I was shocked by that. What what are your feeling? Well, um, Marcus Gisdol is a is a good coach, and you know, as, as you mentioned, the things have turned around ever since uh, since he arrived at the club. Now they they actually actually won. Uh, all matches uh, besides that Dortmund game since December 14th, since Gisdol arrived. So um, I think that's four or five matches out of six or five. And once you go down against a site like Köln, 2-0 at the halftime break, and you know that stadium, you've been to it as well. Yep. I've been to it. Once you go down at that place and you're a small site like Freiburg, you are really up against it and you can get a harsh beating but you know in Salt Lake Freiburg that you would expect them to to get back up and, and move on next week yeah yeah I reckon they will let's uh, wrap things up by talking about Paderborn and Wolfsburg this ended with a, a 4-2 win for the away side for Wolfsburg uh, in Paderborn Another uh, red card situation, which I guess we can address briefly, uh, kind of already alluded to it earlier in the show. I mean, this one was not a descent issue, but it was a, a sort of a fit of peak, which seemed to get uh, the the referee, Patrick Itrich, upset with with uh, Gerrit Holtmann. Gerrit Holtmann and, and Renato Steffen were having sort of a, a bit of a grapple going over the end line. And and after they had crossed the end line, uh, Gerrit Holtmann was, uh, you know, he, he pretty much didn't want Renato Steffen holding on to him anymore and sort of lashed out uh, to be sort of like, get, get off me situation. And Renato Stefan uh, initially held his face as if he had been, you know, slapped or what have you. And, and he put on a bit of a woe is me. He hit me in the face act, which Patrick Itrich totally bought in the moment. Um, the VAR folks in Cologne were in his ear saying, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you want, might want to take another look at that, but it, we'll leave it up to your judgment. He did take another look at it. And despite the fact that you could definitely see that Renato Stefan was not hit in the face, he still thought that uh, Holtmann's uh, sort of lashing out was was violent enough to warrant uh, a, a violent conduct red card, which I think was a joke. I think is actually seriously. I think it not only changed the the course of the game, but it undermined his judgment. Uh, from from the players, especially on the Paderborn side, the Paderborn bench uh, got the yellow cards, multiple yellow cards for different people on the bench at one point for giving him a sarcastic round of applause. It turned into kind of an ugly scene. This is not the sort of thing we talked about earlier, though, where we talked about Stieler, you know, trying to enforce the new directive by the DFB, where you have those those sort of it's it's dangerous for amateurs to see emotional outbursts um, that are disrespectful to the referee. Here, you know, just has a, have, have a player who sort of, like, is quite clear with his opponent, and, you know, it might be deserved of the yellow card, uh, but it's it's nowhere near to a red card, and everybody obviously saw that, besides the referee who had, you know, maybe spotted it incorrectly in the first go-around, and when he sees it, he somehow is stuck in his mind that it's 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 a red card, but that begs the question: uh, when these sort of decisions are clearly wrong, and this was clearly wrong, when those decisions are happening, uh, why do the referees have to watch the replay in front of twenty five thousand people? Why can't the basement dweller in Cologne not just simply speak to Idris saying? 
uh, dude, we've just look at the scene. It's not no one here red card. Please give a yellow card to the Paderborn player. Reverse that decision. Move on with the match, please. Yeah, I, I, I think it. This kind of goes back to what you were talking about the sort of the sanctity of the authority of the referee. It is adjacent to that uh, in that you know German. Refereeing authorities were very uh, insistent that the on-field referee would be the sort of final arbiter of any judgment calls. I mean, not not stuff like uh, uh, offside where it's sort of can, you can actually measure it with pixels and no junk like that. But like all judgment calls, they have they have the last word, and it still bothers me that um, Itzrich looked at that tape and decided he sort of made up maybe a justification in his head that this was still wild and, and violent enough to merit a red card. But it, it just smacked to me like he was he was more concerned with, with being seen to be right with, than, than, than getting it right. And that sucks. It does. And it effectively kept the match, which Wolfsburg won 4-2. Um, Ginchek getting two goals. Maxi Arnold actually scoring a great free kick goal. Yep. Mm-hmm. So yeah, some, some beautiful goals. But obviously it uh, got took from Paderborn the chance to actually get out from the relegation places. And you know what? The fact that Paderborn actually is still in with a fighting chance to stay in the league after 20 match days, we have played almost two-thirds of the season. They're still in with a fighting chance to stay in the Bundesliga. That is actually one of the most sensational stories of the entire season, if you ask me. Because look at that side. It's Thought with players who are, you know, Bundesliga to Dritte Liga level. And yet, they could potentially still stay up at, you know, the expense of Werder Bremen, Fortuna Düsseldorf, Meister Fünf. Sides with, um, you know, two of them with a long, illustrious track record in the Bundesliga by now. And Fortuna Düsseldorf actually with a great history, but, you know, they've been in and out of the Bundesliga over the last decades, but still much bigger sides than than themselves. Much bigger. Okay, that is all for this edition of Talking Foosball, which was produced as always by Aiden Rantoul. It was, you know, really, really great, of course, to have you back on the pod, Nick. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I did, I did. Thanks for having me back on. Sweet, sweet. I, I and man, I, I I can't tell you how charmed I am about that that little painting behind your head of of a little boy getting a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking at it this whole podcast. <laughs> well, I'll uh, I'll make sure to have a painting hanging behind myself next time we'll chat, and uh, maybe it's it's going to be something else occupying your mind next time we'll talk. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, you can of course uh, occupy yourself by following Nick on Twitter. He uh, you know might have things to say at Norm Musings. I am at Mr. Matt Herman over there, and of course you should be subscribing to this podcast wherever you get your fine pods. Uh, leave us a rating if you feel like it. That is always a big help. Talking Foosball Fantasy with uh, JT and Flo. They will be back in action later in the week. So, bis zum nächsten Mal, y'all.